All right, good evening, good evening. Settle down, class. I need like a ruler. Tap, tap, tap. I, uh, I am, um, I'm both uh, exhilarated and disappointed. Here we come this evening to the final two chapters of Ezekiel. Uh, we began our journey through Ezekiel uh, the, near the beginning of the year with the intention of doing a topical survey of this book in 12 weeks. And by about week six, the elders encouraged me to just slow down and let us enjoy it. And so I changed course, and, um, and we've done that. We've slowed down a bit. We've taken a bit more time, and we've enjoyed it. We do come this evening, however, to the final two chapters, and then we'll take next week as the final week of our study to do a full book, big picture overview, hitting the high points and making sure that we haven't lost the big message uh, through the process of 18 weeks and several seasons and looking at some of the details. And so with that, uh, would you join me in the book of Ezekiel and chapter 47? As always, if you have trouble finding Ezekiel, just open your Bible to the middle. You'll most likely hit the book of Psalms or Isaiah because they're big and they're in the middle. And then if you just make your way slowly to the right, you'll pass you know, Proverbs and Jeremiah and you'll hit Ezekiel. When you find your place there in Ezekiel 47, I want to invite you to stand with me. We'll read the first few verses just by way of introduction. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, verse five, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. Let's pause there and pray. Father, thank you for your word and the uniqueness of this prophetic book in which we've spent some evenings together over the past few months. Thank you for its complexity and its artistic beauty. Thank you for the, 
Uh, the, the diligent effort that is required to mine its riches. And also thank you for the, the simplicity of the big picture that is shown through it. We pray that tonight you would continue to give our minds wisdom to understand what is being said. And that in the process we would be in awe of both you, of your creation, of your promises, of your kindness to us, um, and your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. We pick up the story tonight, Ezekiel having another of his, what has become to us, familiar visions. Somewhere between uh, being awake and being asleep. Somewhere between being physically present and physically moved. He is traversing the spiritual dimension. Being taken uh, by an angelic guide for God's purposes through the spiritual plane which we as fallen human beings cannot navigate. In Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. They walked with him and talked with him. And that after the fall, after sin, that they were expelled from the garden and a a blazing sword was placed to keep them from being able to once more pass into the Garden of Eden. Our best understanding of this garden is that it was a real place, of course, and the first man and woman ever created really walked and talked there with God but that what made it unique is that it was a place where the physical and the spiritual dimensions perfectly overlapped. With the introduction of sin, those two planes could no longer overlap in the same way. That is from man's experience. And then occasionally throughout the Bible, we have various instances where the physical plane and the spiritual plane once more cross over one another. The burning bush that Moses encountered on the mountain is one of these places. The bush itself was on fire, and yet what was so unique about it was that it was not burning up. And what we understand is that the bush was earthly and physical. The fire is spiritual. And God chose to have those two planes overlap on that space for his purposes. Such that when Moses approached, God said, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. The shoes of a shepherd would have been covered in feces, dirt, blood. 
because it was a dirty job to be a shepherd. You're out there in the field helping deliver newborn baby sheep, you know, slaughtering animals where they, if they were too sick to carry on, tramping through their excrement and so on. Take off your shoes, Moses, this is holy ground. Why is it holy? It's holy because God's presence was there and it's holy because it is the overlap of the spiritual and the physical planes. The greatest example of the overlap of the spiritual and physical planes is found in the person of Jesus. He, in his humanity, before his death and resurrection, he was a a walking, talking overlap of the physical and the spiritual. When the woman who had bled for 12 years and spent all of her money on all the medicine that she could find, when she reached out and touched his garment, she was healed, right? Now Jesus said, your faith healed you, and there's a complexity there that we don't need to explore. For our purposes, we'll focus on what happens to the harm of sinful humanity when it is exposed to the overlap of the spiritual and the physical. There is healing. There is restoration. There is power. Moses was imbued with certain strengths and powers to perform miraculous signs to authenticate his message when he stood there at the holy ground. Those who touched Jesus and were touched by him experienced the outflow of the overlap of the physical and the spiritual dimension. The place which sinful human, humankind was expelled from, the place where God dwells. Ezekiel is brought into this spiritual plane. He sees a vision, but that's simply wording that is the best way for his audience to understand it. Paul spoke of this similarly when he said, I was caught up into the third heaven where I was or what I, where, where exactly I was or what state I was in, I do not know. What was it? Paul was escorted into the spiritual plane. He was escorted, if you will, into that magical, if you will, okay? That, that magical uh, traversing of the spiritual and physical interplay. Jesus, in his resurrected state, navigated this physical and spiritual plane. You might remember, after his death and the disciples were gathered together, suddenly he appeared in their midst. Shalom, he said, because they were freaking out. The gospel writers made a special point to say we were gathered, the windows were closed, the doors were locked, and suddenly he appeared, right? How did he do so? Oh, he was navigating the spiritual 
and physical plane. In the Old Testament, the prophet, I want to say it's Elisha. Um, Bible students know how easy it is to get their lives and timelines mixed up with their names being so familiar. He was having a bit of a debate with his protege. His protege was terrified there was a great army outside. And he says to his protege, he says, there are more with us than there are with them. He's like, and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And he, he gazes up and he sees the army of heaven. Where, what does he see? Is he seeing a figment of his imagination? Is he seeing a vision? Or is he simply being able to peer into the overlapping spiritual plane? It's always been there. Just he's allowed, by God's permission, the answer to the prophet's prayer to now see what is there. Now, now that we're thoroughly befuddled, what Ezekiel sees when he is escorted into the spiritual plane is that which has already been done. For the spiritual plane in which God's presence resides from all of eternity, exists outside of the constraints of the timetable into which physical creation was birthed and exists. You with me? So when Ezekiel is brought into this spiritual plane to see what he sees, he doesn't merely see what God has chosen to show him in terms of spiritual symbolism. What he sees are actions that have already been accomplished on earth before they have done so but he sees them as if they are already accomplished. All right. Friends, I point this out because we're on the heels of seven chapters last week that spoke of a new temple being rebuilt. A new perfect temple. And yet, this temple was not built in history. It has not yet been constructed, the temple described in chapters 40 through 46. But what we did do was we recognized that the best way to interact with these chapters is to recognize them as illustrative of spiritual truths. The new temple was a representation of hope being restored to Israel. All of their hopes were dashed 14 years prior when the lone survivor traveled from Jerusalem and he found the Israelites on the bank of the Chebar Canal in Babylon, and he told them that the temple had been destroyed. A historical fact, 
we know happened. At that point, the center post of their cultural, spiritual um, identity was broken. It was shattered. The, the center tent peg, if you will, was and their, their world, if you will, collapsed. And finally, it seems, at the collapse of their world, all hopes dashed, it finally seems that they manage as a people to come to a place of repentance. They are finally broken, no longer clinging on to the hope of some other reason for their current predicament except their own sinfulness. And once they stop looking for reasons, other things to blame for their predicament in captivity, then then they are broken, a broken and a contrite heart the Lord does not despise. Their brokenness gives way to what we recognize as God's satisfaction. Being satisfied, God's discipline having been poured out on his people, they've been excommunicated from their land, the city of Jerusalem and the temple physically destroyed, his glory departing and in fact joining them in captivity, it is as if the, the wrath of God is satisfied. The discipline has been doled out and he is now like a loving father having disciplined his son, ready to embrace him once again and say, okay son, let's stand up and start again. And the way that God communicates to his people that, that his punishment has been um, exhausted is that he gives them a vision, a word from the same mouth, Ezekiel, who predicted the destruction of the temple through that same reliable source, now comes the word of hope, the word of restoration, a new temple, a new city, a new resting place for my people. I have not cut you off completely. Merely, I did what I promised I would do in Deuteronomy. I punished you. I expelled you for your wickedness. And now his wrath is satisfied. Now we noted last week that the gospel writers tell us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Means satisfaction. Meaning that when God poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross for our sins, he was satisfied. The discipline was handed out. And he is now, in this age, the church age, the age of grace, ready and able to wrap his arms around his children and say, okay, let's start again. And so while, while it's cloaked in history 
and layers of symbolism. What we're looking at in Ezekiel is really the message of the gospel. God's wrath poured out. He is satisfied and his character is proven because he extends through the mouth of his prophet. First, Ezekiel, later, the final prophet, Jesus. That there is hope and there is a future. And so the picture of that hope and God's wrath being satisfied, his warm embrace once again of his children, with the caveat that it's not because of them, but because he is good. It begins with a temple, and then in chapter 47, flowing from that temple is a river. Now, if you're taking notes, we'll consider this point number one of three, the new temple river. There was no river flowing from the original temple in Jerusalem, just to be clear. There never was. Not when it was reconstructed, when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah returned with waves of captives coming back to Jerusalem, and not when it was originally constructed by Solomon, and not when Herod expanded it in the life and days of Jesus. There has never been water flowing from the temple, but in this temple, the temple that is seen in the spiritual plane, the temple that is a picture of God's presence dwelling with his people, water flows out from it. Once again, The best way to approach these chapters is to see them as illustrative of spiritual truths. The river is a symbol. It is a symbol, the river itself. Listen to this. The temple stream to which Ezekiel's attention is now for the first time directed, it's as if the stream has been coming out the whole time, but he hasn't been paying attention. He hasn't noticed it seven chapters of description and he's only now being directed, hey look, there's water coming out from underneath the temple. The temple stream to which Ezekiel's attention is now for the first time directed is a symbol of the miraculous transformation which the land of Israel is to undergo, this is key friends, in order to fit it for the habitation of Jehovah's ransomed people. So here's the idea. God says, my wrath is poured out and I'm ready to embrace my children again. And as a symbol of that, here is a new temple. But, but the new temple being illustrative of God's presence with them, uh, we will not simply go back to the old place where we came. In fact, um, this whole space needs renovated. First, Ezekiel 36, you need renovated a new heart, right? And then the space that I'm creating for you to occupy in my grace, it also needs renovated. And so from the temple flows a river that remakes the whole of the land of Israel. 
A restored people, a renewed people cannot occupy the same old land. Well, like I said last week, friends, Jesus said it. He has gone to prepare a place for you. The Father's house with many mansions. It's a holy place for a holy people. We can't go there now. Only once we have been rid, if you will, stripped of this unredeemed flesh and glorified in eternity, only then can we enter into the place that has also been remade in God's glory. So you see the two things working hand in hand. The people being remade with a new heart and the land being remade. God gave us a creation, we spoiled it. And in Revelation, what we read of is a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. A land restored by the water flowing from the temple that is God's presence. So the land, the the river is a symbol. The land is then symbolically changed. Let's pick it up here at verse six. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went, I saw on the bank of the river, this is verse seven, very many trees on one side and the other. Seemingly these trees weren't there before, right? And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and it goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river flows. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engalem, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, for they are left to be for salt. The land is symbolically changed. This special river transforms everything it touches. J.I. Packer affirms that this is in fact the Dead Sea. I think even some translations of the Bible say the Dead Sea, that this river flows out from the temple and it ends in the, the Dead Sea. Why is it called the Dead Sea? Well, because the salt content is so high that nothing can live inside of it and yet this river flows into it and it is made fresh and it is teeming with life and everything along the bank of the river as it gets deeper and wider along the way. Is there any more extreme vision of life being birthed out of death than this? The Dead Sea being alive. Of course, Ephesians 2 should come to mind. Bible students, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. Right? He made us alive. How so? Well, through Christ, who is the overlap of the spiritual and the physical plane. 
he is the river of living water, as Jesus said in John 4. He is the living water, and whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. Everywhere the river flows, life springs from it. That which it touches, like the woman who touched the hem of his garment. Anything the water touches, it nourishes, it is restored, it is healed, it is transformed. And so the river is a symbol, the land being symbolically changed, of course, is a symbol and a picture. Water and the nourishment that it provides is a symbol. Look at verse 12. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Look, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit Every month, because of the water for them, flows from the sanctuary. This is not going to be like another. This isn't just a new tree. This isn't just an orchard. This is supernatural, heavenly stuff echoed in the book of Revelation, echoed in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. They're... Fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing, literally words borrowed in the book of Revelation. In the Bible, famine is a sign of God's judgment and rain is a sign of his blessing. These trees with leaves that do not wither are a symbol of the change that has occurred. Listen, nothing but perpetual blessing. That's the change no more famine only blessing the leaves don't wither you don't have a single month where you get the persimmons off the tree you have fresh persimmons all year round my kids and I we watch those little green persimmons get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger all summer long until eventually they turn orange and they start falling out of that tree and it's like a race between you and the ants to get that sweet like pumpkin-y Juicy goodness. If you've never had a good persimmon, come to my house in about a month (laughs) because they're not ready. (laughs) But that's the idea. If a lack of water is a picture of God's judgment and an abundance of water is a picture of his blessing, what we're looking at here is a symbol of perpetual blessing. And so what's the point of this all? Well, simply this. God will provide a temple. He will provide a priesthood. And he'll provide a worship system rooted in but totally different from what Israel knew. Again, John 4. What did Jesus say to the woman who was at the well with him? He said, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. And out of them will come torrents of living water. So not only are you restored, but you become a vessel of this living water. And are we not that, friends? Is that not what we see? Fishermen standing beside the sea. I will make you fishers of men. Is this not the word of the gospel? Faith comes by what? And hearing by the word of God. God has chosen your feeble broken, uh, inept words 
to be the vehicle by which torrents of living water flow with the gospel. I think he should have come up with a better plan. Don't you? I often feel quite inadequate when it's time to express my faith. I feel the, the, my mouth dry up and my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth as I search and scramble for the right words. Oh Lord, why wouldn't you have made a more sophisticated vehicle to deliver such a tremendous gift, water that restores and nourishes and heals everything it touches? And yet he has providentially chosen our mouthpieces to be the vehicle by which the the word of God is proclaimed and heard. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring the good news. Friends, we would do well to remember Ezekiel chapter 47 and the nourishing, life-giving water that Jesus says is in fact him as we share the gospel. We're, We're just... Is we're just letting the water flow. We don't heal anything. We don't restore anything. We're doing good just to put on matching socks, right? But the message that we carry is living water, and everything it touches, it heals. What a wonderful and beautiful symbol. This is what life looks like. John Skinner puts it this way. This is what life looks like when God dwells with man in perfect peace. Quote, when all causes of offense are removed from Israel and Jehovah smiles on his people. When all causes of offense are removed from Israel and Jehovah smiles on his people. Like the smile of God is what's emanating from beneath his temple and just nourishing and remaking everything it touches. But how is it, friends, that all the offenses of Israel have been removed from them? Well, in Christ, Jew and Gentile are alike. They are the true Israel, Romans 11, Galatians 6 that the the true and complete picture of Abraham's descendants are not those who are only born to him by his seed, but those who are born to him of the seed of his faith. And so all of the offenses are removed from true Israel through Christ. As the prophet foretold Isaiah 43, God says, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I am he who blots out your transgression. All the offense is removed. How about Psalm 103? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I am he who blots out your transgressions. And when all of the offenses have been removed, God smiles on his people. 
and everything is remade, and everything is reborn. Everything is started over. I have a friend who is who's in a crisis of faith. He does not believe what he says he believes. He says he believes that when we are born again in Christ, all things are made new. And yet, he simultaneously says, I cannot be freed from this sin. I cannot be freed from this addiction. I am who I am, and that's not gonna change. He is in essence saying, I cannot be restored. I am beyond broken. And he's currently sitting day after day, idle in his lack of belief. Friends, if there is one grand picture in the Bible that we must hold on to, that is at the heart of the gospel, it's, it's this. It's this nourishing water that comes from Jesus that blots out everything in your past and it frees you. I'm sorry. Uh, I would, I'd like to be able to say this to my friend, but he's not speaking to me right now. And so it is the message, friends, for the evening. That there is nothing from which you cannot be healed, no darkness from which you cannot be restored, no past brokenness that Jesus cannot empathize with, no addiction that has a claim on your body that he cannot free you from. There is nothing that the water touches that isn't healed. And not only do we become healed in him, but we become vessels of that healing and nourishing for others. See, it's best to approach these chapters as though they are illustrative of spiritual truths. See, it's one big story, friends. The complexity of a book like Ezekiel is no different from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Later on, John writes an even more simplified version. If you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive. (laughs) And so it's a good word. It's a good word for us tonight. And in fact, 
uh, to just pause there and knowing that we have next week to summarize it all, we'll take next week to look at the final little, little lesson, little truth uh, that we can glean from this chapter or from, these, from this book. Father, thank you for your word and for the privilege of spending a few moments relishing in the wonder and the goodness of the gift of your forgiveness. The, 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 the minds of which we are yet to fully explore, the treasures of which we are yet to fully uncover, and yet the greatest treasure of all is, is sitting plainly there for us to see. Just as the water nourishes everything it touches, so too does the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nourishing and making us new. Setting us free and making us whole. Thank you. And may those within the sound of my voice, may they be confident that they have tasted this water, have drunk deeply from this well, have been immersed in this living water that makes us new. And if not, Lord, would you continue, as you are now, continue to stir their hearts, and may they not be able to rest until they respond. In Christ's name, amen.